Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast with lead pastor Don Headley. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that he gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. We are kicking off a brand new series that's going to take us through the next several months. Uh, We're calling it Marked, and we're actually going to be teaching out of the Gospel of Mark. And one of the reasons why I'm excited about this, first of all, it's one of my favorite books of of all the Bible. Secondly, it's what we've built our discipleship process on, is working through uh, the, the book of Mark with somebody, being able to teach them and instruct them and raise them up in their faith as well. And so I have a challenge for you. Over the next couple of months... I want to encourage you to read the book of Mark. Now, if you don't have a Bible study, if you are not engaged uh, in a Bible study or a life group or something, then definitely you need to take this challenge seriously. Dive into the book of Mark. We're going to be covering a chapter a week. And if you do the math, that's 16 weeks. We're going to be in this for a little while. But I believe that uh, by the time we get to the end of it, it's going to be one of your favorite books as well. And so um, you could probably guess this. I'm going to tell you, go ahead and turn over to Mark chapter 1. That's where we're going to start this morning. And before I jump into this today, I want to remind you uh, that we have the Ask Anything here at the bottom of the screen. Now, some of you are pretty new. You probably don't know about this. If you've been around a while, you know what this is. Uh, we, we are bringing it back for this series. And uh, the Ask Anything, you don't have to write it down. It'll stay on the bottom of the screen the whole time we're teaching today. Uh, but what that is, it's an Ask Anything number. You can text a question to that phone number at any time. And like I said, it'll stay up there. So if, if through the message you have a question, you can just pick your phone up, text it right to that number. It comes through anonymously. We get the question. And if we have questions at the end of the service, we will actually have our pastors come up here on the stage and we'll answer those questions before you head out today. If, if you're leaving with questions, we're not doing our job. And so we want to answer those questions best that we can. And uh, we're going to implement this, this series. So this entire series, it'll be up here. So every week when you come in, just know that you can ask those questions and we'll try to answer them before you head out at the end. Now, before I launch into this whole series of Mark, I think it's important for us to do some background work on this book. Because I think if you understand the context, if you understand where it's coming from, it makes a lot more sense. And so first question this morning, can anyone guess who wrote the book of Mark? No one? No, I'm just joking. Yeah, it's, it's pretty obvious, right? And this is, this is just a, a goofy little way of saying this. Mark just comes out and says it like it is. You're going to love this book because of that. Uh, we know that Mark wrote this book, and, and more appropriately, he's referred to as John Mark in the Scriptures. And uh, we know several things about him in Scripture. First of all, he was not one of the original 12 apostles, so he's not an apostle. But he worked with the apostles, and actually, he was the apostle Peter's interpreter when, when Peter was in Rome. And so he was hearing all the stories, he was writing all these things down, and uh, we know from Scripture that he had a, a mother by the name of Mary who lived in Jerusalem. She owned some property there in Jerusalem. We also know that he was the cousin of Barnabas, the encourager in Scripture. Uh, that was a, a relative of his. We also know that he had a, a lot of firsthand experience as well because he went on some of the missionary trips with the apostles. 
Uh, the first one, Paul and Barnabas went on a, an, a, a missionary trip in Acts chapter 13. Uh, John Mark was one of the ones that went with them on that journey. Now, we're not told why. We just know that somewhere along that journey, uh, John Mark decided he had to return home. And so he left that missionary journey early to head home. We don't know why. We're not told the details. It could have been he just got homesick, or it could have been like somebody died in his family. We don't know. But he, he left. Now, that's not an issue at all in Acts chapter 13. And it doesn't become an issue until we get to Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 15, uh, there's a story recorded of of Paul saying to Barnabas, hey, let's go back and do the missionary journey again and visit those same churches that we planted, see those same people, see what's going on, continue to preach the gospel. And Barnabas says, great idea. Let's go and let's take Mark with us. And Paul says, nope, I don't like that idea because he abandoned us on our first journey. We took him with us, and he's not reliable. We can't depend on him. I don't want to take him. And Barnabas looks at it the other way and goes, hey, it was for whatever reason, but I feel like we need to take him with us. And all we're told, we're not told the details of that conversation. We're just told that that disagreement got so sharp that Paul ended up going a different direction. He took a young man by the name of Silas with him, and Barnabas took John Mark, and they went a different direction to do their missionary trips. Um, And so later on, uh, John Mark sits down. And he writes out this gospel. And we know, uh, it, was, it was thought for many, many years that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were recorded that way. That they, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were kind of put in that order based on the way they were written. And just over a hundred years ago, all these scrolls and evidence started coming to light. And they realized that actually Mark is the earliest gospel that was written. It was written about 55 to 60 A.D., and right around the time that Peter is being martyred. And we believe that that's some of what sparked this, is he was the interpreter for Peter when he was in Rome. He's heard all the stories, and he felt it was necessary, um, either right before or after Peter was, was martyred, that he needed to record all of these stories. And so he sat down, wrote them all down, and that's what we have in our hands today. Now, um, I want to bring this up because I think this is so important for us to understand because there's arguments out there that talk about, you know, whether Scripture is valid or not, whether it's true, whether it's trustworthy, and I hope that you'll uh, learn over the next several weeks that you can put total faith in the Gospels that they are trustworthy, and I'll tell you why. One One of the reasons right now is because Mark wrote this in 55 to 60 AD, and if you do the math, it's about... 20, just a little over 20 years after Jesus was crucified and he rose again. 20 years. That's not a lot of time. And I don't know what you've been told, but I know a lot of the arguments on the internet is, you know, these gospels were written down a long time later and and they're so removed that we don't even know if they're true or not. And that's not true at all. 20 years. And let me give you an example. If I wanted to sit down today and I wanted to write a documentary on this, can anyone tell me what that is? How do you know? Because you saw it, right? You witnessed it. Um, If I wrote a book about 9-11, which was just over 20 years ago, and, and I wrote down all kinds of falsehoods, and I made up all kinds of stuff about it, and I got it published, and it was shipped all over the world, what do you think would happen? There would be massive objection, wouldn't there? It would be torn down. Like, it would be discredited. Why? Because there's so many people that were witnesses to this. 
and there are people that are alive today that were there. They experienced it firsthand, and they would read the book and go, this is a bunch of trash, and we're going to throw it out. And so with that in mind, going back to Mark, Mark writes his, his epistle, I'm sorry, his uh, gospel, right after 20 years after Jesus died. There were still people around that had witnessed Jesus, the, the ministry and the death and the resurrection, and if anything that he wrote down wasn't true, they would have spoke out against that. They would have struck it down. It would have been discredited, and yet here it is today, 2,000 years later, and it's still going strong. Mark um, is the earliest gospel written, and so because of that, we know about five years later, Luke would sit down to write his And he would be aware of what Mark wrote down. And so he would write his from a different perspective, and he would include a lot of the stories that Mark wrote down. And he would actually add to it. Uh, Because Mark, I'm sorry, Luke was a researcher. He would talk to all these different eyewitnesses. He would research his book before he wrote it down. So he's got a lot more detail in the stories, even the ones that are copied from Mark into Luke. And then... Uh, About 10 years later, Matthew would sit down, Matthew being one of the apostles, and he would write his, and he would be aware of Mark and Luke's and what they wrote down, and he would write from his perspective what happens. And so when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see a lot of the same stories being told from different perspectives, and a lot of the things that they talk about that they say are contradictions are not. And actually, you're going to see some of those as we go through this series. We're going to show you that those, those, what seems to be contradictions are actually lending validity to the Gospels and showing you that, no, they were writing from their own perspectives and actually bringing more light to those events in Scripture. Now, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic Gospels. Uh, Synoptic is this word that just means one eye, uh, one focus. They're very similar to each other, and so that makes up what we call the synoptic Gospels, but the whole Gospels include four, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So what would happen is 15 years later, John, after all the other apostles have been martyred, he's the last one remaining, he would sit down, and in light of what had been written in Mark and Luke and Matthew, he would sit down and he would write his. And what's interesting about John's perspective and his approach is that he read through that and he was like, okay, I understand what they're writing, and I'm going to fill in all the gaps. One example, we just went through a series called I Am, right? It's all the I am statements. Do you realize they only appear in the book of John? Do you know why? Because he thought that was important enough to add. Like these these three gospels, they didn't include that. I'm going to make sure I include that in mine as well. So if you're doing a summary of all the gospels, you would say it this way, that Matthew, being very Jewish, was, was telling the story of Jesus, and he was tying it back to the Old Testament, to prophecy, because that was important to the Jewish culture. Mark is writing, he's showing the life of Jesus Christ, and he's proving to you as he writes that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the suffering servant that was was prophesied about. Luke, he does all of his uh, resources, and he does all of his research, and he writes his book giving a lot more detail about the life of Christ. And then John comes along, and John becomes the cement that fills in all of the gaps. And so together, it's amazing how they complement one another. And they're absolutely incredible. When you read them through, you get a a big, big picture of the life of Christ. And I just love the fact that we're going to jump into Mark starting today. Uh, Mark also is the shortest gospel out of all four of them. And 
It's the first one. I think it's one of the reasons why it's the shortest, but also because he was taking Peter's uh, stories and everything, his perspective, and he was writing that down. And he writes it in narrative form. And it's actually the most chronological of all the Gospels. And you're going to see that. He just jumps right into it, and he tells the story all the way through from the beginning of, to the end. And, and it's interesting to me because if you really, really take a look at the book of Mark and you wanted to break it down into three sections, you could do it geographically. Let me show you what I'm talking about. If you take a look at where they were at, up here at the north, this uh, Sea of Galilee, this body of water, uh, this is where the majority of all the ministry took place for Jesus. And so if you took chapters one through eight, all of that would be happening in this northern section. And then chapters 8 through 10 is actually Jesus traveling south from the Sea of Galilee down here to Jerusalem. And by the time you get to Jerusalem, chapters 11 to 16 spell out the end of Jesus' life in Jerusalem. You could do the whole thing geographically. Um, and a couple other things I want to make sure that you're aware of before we jump into this book today is that Mark is very fond of a few words. The first one is immediately. You will see this word immediately come, over, uh, come up over and over and over again. And if you write in your Bibles, and we highly encourage that, mark up your Bibles, ha, get it, right? Um, mark it up and uh, write down thoughts, what the Holy Spirit lays on your heart, lessons that you're learning, write them in your Bibles. And I would encourage you, maybe even circle or, or you know, put a square around every immediately that you come to. It's that narrative form that he's writing in. Uh, Jesus did this, and immediately after he goes this, and they did all this, and immediately then... You know, and immediately they went to this place, and immediately he does this. And, and so he's telling this story of the life of Christ all the way through. Uh, another word that comes up a lot in the book of Mark is authority. Mark is very intentional about showing you the authority, that all of the authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, and, and that because of that, that he is the Messiah, the prophesied one. Um, I read an article on this um, book written by one of the scholars and uh, the way he described the book of Mark, I loved it. He just said, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ on steroids. And I think you're going to agree with that by the time we get through this book. And so let's jump into it today. Mark chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 1, it says this. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. Uh, I love the way he starts this off because he tells you right up front what he's doing, that this is about the good news about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then he starts, he launches right into his narrative, but he starts with John the Baptist. Now, this is interesting to me because uh, if you think through it, Matthew actually starts at a different spot. Matthew goes clear back and he starts his gospel with a genealogy of Jesus, and he goes clear back to Genesis, and he starts with Abraham, showing that, you know, it's, he's from the line of David, and he, he writes out this narrative, um, and then if uh, you take a look at Matthew, he continues on through the birth of Jesus Christ. Luke does the same thing. Luke actually starts with the proclamation that John the Baptist is going to be born to Zacharias and Elizabeth, and then he moves to the proclamation that the angel makes to Mary about the fact she's going to give birth to this, this Messiah, and his name is going to be Jesus, and he, and he starts with the birth of Jesus Christ, uh, and then you go to John, and John goes even further back than that. He goes clear back to creation, because John says, in the beginning was the word, and the Word was God, and the word, uh, with God, and the Word was God, is what he says. And so all of them start way back. But with Mark, 
Mark just jumps right into it. And he starts with the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. The fact that there was John the Baptist. He was the first prophet in 400 years to show up on the scene. And he's, he's pro- uh, clearing the way. He's, he's preparing the way for Jesus to proclaim who he is. And it starts with the baptism of Jesus Christ. Um, I, I think chapter 1, if you wanted to break it into sections, you could make an argument that it could be broken down in maybe four or five parts. It starts with John the Baptist, and it goes to the baptism and the temptation of Jesus Christ, and then he calls his first few disciples to follow him, and then it goes into healing. Um, He casts out evil spirits. He heals Simon's mother-in-law. He heals a leper. Uh, He heals many other people, and then you could make the argument at the end that it starts to go into the preaching in the, the region of Galilee. Um, but this, this is the way chapter 1 unfolds, and it continues in verse 5. It's talking, it's giving us prophecy out of Malachi and, and Isaiah here about John the Baptist. And then it says in verse 4, This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see him. And here John, and when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I am not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. And what he's talking about is the lowest slave in the house would be the one that as guests were coming through the door, they would get down, they'd take off the sandals and wash the feet of the guests that were coming through the door. And what John is saying, and keep in mind, he's the first prophet in 400 years. He's saying, look, I am not even worthy to wash the feet of the one who is to come. And then it says, but he will baptize you uh, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, this story is also told in Matthew. And, and when Matthew tells the story, he says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, is what he says. You know, there's baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, when you receive Christ, um, it, it says in that moment, because of the work that Jesus did on the cross and in the, in the tomb, he hollowed out the tomb, that when we receive Christ, that we are made right with God and that we are filled with his Holy Spirit. There's a baptism of the Holy Spirit, but also uh, Matthew puts in there a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. Um, unfortunately, there's many that are not going to believe in Jesus. They're going to reject Jesus. They will not be baptized with the Holy Spirit, but they will be baptized with fire in the end of times, because that, what he's describing there is hell, eternal separation from God. And so we'll, we'll have one or the other baptism decide, uh, depending on what we decide in this life. Uh, it goes on in verse 9 to say, One day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. I especially love texts that spell out the Trinity. When you can see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? So you have God the Father, you have Jesus, and you have the Holy Spirit all spelled out in one text. And we have it right here in verses 10 and 11. You see Jesus, who is uh, the Son, came out of the water, and then you see uh, the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit, so we have the Holy Spirit ascending on him, and then there's a voice from heaven, which is God's voice, saying, you are my dearly loved Son, 
and you bring me great joy. You got all three of the Holy Spirit playing out in two verses right there, and God speaks into this. And what I find fascinating about this is if you go to Mark chapter 9, verse 7, when Jesus goes up on the mountain and for the transfiguration, he takes some of his disciples and he's meeting with two of the prophets and, and you see the glory of God. There's a voice from heaven. God himself is speaking again and he says, this is my dearly loved son, listen to him. It's kind of an echo of this moment right here. Um, another thing that I love about this text is that it says as Jesus came up out of the water after his baptism, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending. Uh, the word that's used there for that splitting apart or tearing is this word shizo, and it's only used a couple places in Scripture. It's used here, and then it's also used in Mark chapter 15, 38. At the very end of Jesus' life, he's on the cross, and his last words, it is finished. And it says in the text that when Jesus breathes his last breath, that the curtain that separated the, the main area in the temple and the Holy of Holies, where it says that God's presence was to dwell by the ark, that curtain that separated that was ripped. It was torn, shizo, from the top to the bottom. And so we have it at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's being baptized, and then we have it at the very end of his life when he takes his last breath. It goes on in verse 12. The Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals, and angels took care of him. Now this is amazing. It's just a real quick uh, just one verse about him being tempted in the wilderness. And yet when you go to John, Matthew chapter 4, you read the entire text about how he was tempted, that he was tempted three times. And, and you find out that Satan came to him and he tempted him with Scripture, using Scripture, which tells us, unfortunately, for most of us, that Satan knows Scripture better than we do. And then how did Jesus defend himself? He used Scripture to defend himself. Now here's my question. If Jesus went out in the wilderness, this was the beginning of his ministry, he went out there by himself, he didn't even have any disciples at that time, he goes out by himself, he's tempted, and he goes to this experience, how do Mark and Matthew know about it to record it? The answer is Jesus told them. Jesus told Matthew, he told the disciples, and they told other people, they wrote it down for us to know. Why? Because Jesus wants us to know how important it is for us to understand that we need to know Scripture. We're told that we are supposed to weigh everything out against the truths in Scripture. And if there's ever a time in our history that we need to know truth, it's today. Right on? Right on. Man, things are so twisted right now and messed up. If you don't know your Scriptures, you can be misled so easily. We need to be in the Word of God. And so my challenge when I started this message to get into the, to the book of Mark is I'm serious about it. If you don't have a, a daily Bible reading, if you're not in a Bible study... Just choose today that you're going to dive into the book of Mark with us as we walk through this because you need to know your scriptures because that's how you defend off temptation. That's how you test everything to know whether it's true or not. It says later on after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little further up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee 
in the boat with the hired men. I believe, I just want to pause just for a minute and say this, that I believe this is the call to each and every one of us. It was the call to Peter and Andrew and James and John 2,000 years ago, but it's the call to you and me today. Jesus just calls us and says, follow me, follow me. I don't need anything else from you, but just commit yourself to me. Just follow me, and I'll teach you everything that you need to know. You don't have to get your life straight first. You don't have to prepare everything. Just follow me. And it says immediately they get up and they follow him. And my question is this, will you follow him? Because I know uh, as we talked about, we sang this song, you know, um, if you're not in it, I don't want it. Take everything. Just give me Jesus. Do we really believe that? Are we true followers of Jesus Christ? Because that's the call that Jesus has for each and every one of us. He had it for them 2,000 years ago, and he has it for you and me today. Will you follow? Verse 21, it says, Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority. That's one of our words there. Quite unlike the teachers of religious law. Suddenly a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus reprimanded him, Be quiet, come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then came out of him. Amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this, they asked excitedly. It has such authority, again, our word. Even evil spirits obey his orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. No kidding, right? He's throwing out evil spirits. Well, that word would spread pretty quickly, wouldn't it? Um, Why would Jesus tell the evil spirit to be quiet? Why would he keep him from proclaiming that Jesus is the Holy One of God? Have you thought about that? Like, why would he do that? And I'm asking this question because I'm just going to tip you off right now. This is the question that you will see all through the book of Mark. Why is Jesus telling them not to tell anyone? And the simple answer is this, is that it's not his time yet. He still has work to do. There are things he's he's wanting to accomplish before the end of his life. And he knows, and, and if you know your scriptures, you know this. As soon as Jesus comes out and proclaims that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, what happens? They crucify him. Jesus knows it's not his time yet. And so that's the answer that you're going to need for a lot of these, these stories that you're going to read all through the book of Mark. Just remember that it's not his time yet. It's not his time yet. It goes on in verse 29. It says, after Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. That evening, after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. But because the demons knew he was, who he was, he did not allow them to speak. Let me ask you again. Why did he not allow them to speak? It wasn't his time yet. It wasn't his time yet. But can you imagine? I mean, we just read through that pretty quickly, and you've probably read this before, but I want you just to think, just for a minute, what would that scene have looked like? The whole town is bringing sick people and demon-possessed people to Jesus, and he's healing them, like diseases they couldn't be cured of, and he heals them. 
blindness and they get their sight back, crippled, and they stand up and they walk out, demon-possessed, and he casts the demons out. And let me ask you this. If that was happening today, what would happen? Like Jesus shows up at the front doors at King's Supers, and you get word that he's over there casting out demons and healing people. What would you do? Would you, would you go? Would you, would you go check things out? Would you, would you want to be healed? Would you go see him? Uh, let me ask a better question. Would you believe in him? If you saw it, would you really believe? See, I think many of us, we go, oh yeah, I would definitely believe. But see, when you read through the book of Mark, here's what you find out. There's three groups of people. They all saw everything that was going on. They heard Jesus' teaching. And the first group are those who saw and they heard and they believed. They put their trust in Jesus. They declared he is the Messiah. Um, And then you have another group that saw everything, they heard everything, but yet they were still doubting. They still had questions. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you've never received Christ. You're just checking things out. You have doubts. And I pray that through this series that you'll come face to face with this Jesus who loves you, who is the Messiah, who is the Son of God. But there's a third group as well. Those who saw everything and heard everything and they rejected him totally. And some of these were even the religious leaders because they saw it and they heard it and they still didn't believe and they pushed to kill Jesus. My question is, which group are you in? Do you believe? Are you doubting? Or are you rejecting Jesus this morning? It goes on in verse 35. It says, before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Remember, we started our, our service off today with prayer. We spent time in directed prayer. Prayer is critical. Jesus even gets off by himself to go pray. It places the importance on on time with God, our Heavenly Father. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. This is why I came. So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. Mark is telling us very early in his book, in the very first chapter, that Jesus didn't just come for one geographical location. He didn't come for one group of people. He came for everyone. He came for every one of us. And I thank God for that every day. Going to verse 40, it says, A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. Listen to this line. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. I love the faith expressed in that line. God, if you're willing, I I know you can do this. I know that you can heal me. He places his faith in Jesus Christ. And then it says, moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. He's got leprosy. Like there's no cure for that. It's a death sentence. And he comes to Jesus and, and says, look, if you're willing, I know that you can heal me. You can make me clean. And Jesus does this. He, he doesn't just step back. Because let me ask you this. Did Jesus have to lay hands on him to heal him? No. He could have just said the words, right? Why didn't you just say, keep your distance? I'll just go ahead and heal you from here, right? Why did Jesus feel the need to lay hands on this leper to heal him? My guess is this. Because that's exactly what he needed. See, Jesus knows what we need. He knows our deepest desires. He knows what we, what we need when we need it. And for this man, Jesus decided to lay hands on him when nobody else would touch him. And he laid hands on him 
and he healed him. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared, and the man was healed. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. Anyone want to guess what the warning is? Yeah, don't speak, right? He says, don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I, I read that and I go, well, the guy disobeyed Jesus' command, right? But yet it's hard to blame him, right? Because if you had a death sentence and Jesus laid his hands on you and healed you, could you keep it to yourself or would you have to tell other people? So I think we'd have to tell other people. Why did Jesus tell the guy not to tell anyone else? Because it wasn't his time. It's not his time yet. Um, And yet the man went out and he told everybody, right? It's not his time yet, but yet the man disobeyed the command that Jesus gave and went out and told everybody. And yet we look at that and we go, that's fine. I understand why he did it. But here's the kicker as I read through this. Look at the effect that it had. The rest of verse 45 says, as a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus and he could not publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in the secluded places, but the people from everywhere kept coming to him. Now I bring that up to say this. Jesus gave him a command. He asked for his obedience. And yes, we can make excuses for that. And it would have been hard, right? It would have been hard not to say something. But if that's Jesus' request, that's what he's asking of us, then we need to obey that. I read through that, and and here's my thought, is I never want to be that person that my disobedience hinders the work that Jesus is doing. Does that make sense? Does it make sense? Because I want us to get this, because some of us, we confess with our mouth that we're following Christ and yet our lives mislead other people. People point at us and say, that's the reason why I can't believe in Jesus. I hope we learn this today. Our obedience is critical. And I know there's a whole theological argument in this, but I'll just tell you, as I read this, I see that he couldn't publicly enter town anywhere. That's a sad statement as a result of what this guy did for disobeying what Jesus had. Now that's the way um, verse uh, chapter one ends, but I wanna take you all the way back to the beginning because I think this is something we're gonna have to hit on all the way through the book of Mark. It's the purpose of Mark. Mark tells us in the very beginning of verse one, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, as we go through the book of Mark, as you read through there, if you ever wonder why it's in there, if you ever wonder why John Mark wrote this down, all you have to do is go back to the first part of verse one and he'll tell you why. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He's doing all of this so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. If you have any questions as you read through that, always go back to verse one and it will tell you why it's there. The message of Mark 1 is that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he was baptized by John the Baptist. He was led out to be tempted, and he overcame temptation. He called his first few disciples to follow him, and they immediately followed him. He preached throughout Galilee. He healed and he cast out spirits. He is the Son of God, and he calls us today to follow him. That's the message of chapter 1. And I pray that in the coming weeks, we'll see that Mark is spelling out a case that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the suffering servant. 
And I pray that over the next few weeks that we will come to believe and commit our lives to him, commit ourselves to follow him and grow in our faith. And I pray that by the time we get to the end of this book and the end of this series, that all of us have a deeper understanding and appreciation for Jesus' life, what he went through for us so that we could be made right with God and that we believe with everything within us that he is who he says he is. And I want to pray for that right now. Would you just join me in that? Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for your word. I I thank you for um, everyone sitting here today that we're open to your spirit, Lord, through worship, that we, we opened up our minds and hearts to what your Holy Spirit would speak into our lives. And Lord, I pray that you're just meeting with us on our own level where we're at, that if it's conviction, that we would receive that. If it's encouragement, that we would take that in. But God, I pray that all of this is molding and shaping us into people that look more and more like you. God, we give you this series. We give you this time. We ask that you would use it to grow us up in you. And Lord, we pray that everything that we do and say just glorifies the name of Jesus Christ, that it's making us be people that look more and more like you every day. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen.